We are judged by the value that we create for our customers. And the value is increased output or increased margins, decreased graph, decreased waste. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up everyone? Welcome to episode 67. Today, we're going to hear the truth about machine learning. We're speaking with Willem Sundblad, the CEO and co-founder of Odin Technologies. Odin Technologies is an intelligent automation company empowering manufacturers to embrace Industry 4.0 to achieve optimal production. Or as Willem puts it, he helps manufacturers stay agile, boost profits, and cut costs. Said another way, Odin Technologies helps customers achieve these outcomes through machine learning, and that's just what we're talking about today. A few things you can expect from today's episode are first, we're going to get to know Will and his background in the industrial world, how he came up in a pulp and paper family. So we've got some cool stories to hear there. Second, we're going to simplify machine learning and hear some practical applications for it in the manufacturing space. Finally, Willem is going to discuss a number of larger challenges that customers are facing within the industrial space today, as well as some great advice on how companies need to be thinking about their value in the context of the problems that they solve. All this and more here on Manufacturing Happy Hour today. If you want to learn more, as always, head to the show notes page. This episode is episode 67, so you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 67. And if you are enjoying this show and you want to take part in conversations like this with other manufacturing leaders, please consider joining our community over on LinkedIn. It's the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. There are over 500 manufacturing leaders in this group currently, and we're constantly having discussions on that platform about what's impacting manufacturers, what people are doing to solve their problems. It's a great group to be a part of. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com community. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and I'll make sure to let you right into that group. And with that, let's not waste any more time. It's time to use our imaginations a bit because we have to head to a pretty exotic destination for today's conversation with Willem Sunblad. All right, Willem, we've been uh, looking forward to this interview all week. I know you just said you've been back to back with meetings all day which is why it's perfect for manufacturing happy hour, right? So let's let's set this up appropriately. And it's on National Manufacturing Day. It is National Manufacturing Day, the day we're recording this. That's right. Yeah, couldn't couldn't be even better. But I guess the big thing is, since it has been a full day so far, it's probably, you know, in theory, time for a beer. So if we were having this conversation over a drink, whether it's where you're based in New York or in your home country of Sweden or wherever it is, where would we be having that beverage right now? So... Ideally, we're having it in northern Sweden. I love the outdoors in the mountains. So there's this little place called Ore. It's A with a ring on top, R-E. It's a um, like mountain town six hours north of Stockholm. And whenever I go back to Sweden, that's where I try to go, either for skiing or for hiking. 
And so either we're just having it out in the wilderness, enjoying you know the, the beautiful sights, or we're having it at my favorite bar and restaurant. It's just one of those restaurants where you can pick anything on the menu and it's just going to be fantastic. Uh, so we're having it in Ore. All right. In Orat, Sweden, I have yet to go skiing or I, I snowboard. I have yet to get up there. Actually, I haven't been to uh, Scandinavia in general, so I need to get out there. But I am all about Apri's skiing, having that post snowboarding yeah, exactly. beer. So there's a lot of manufacturing in Sweden. There's a lot of manufacturing in Sweden. So, you know, there's a there's a great opportunity for you to combine both of well, the beer interest, the snowboard interest and the manufacturing interest. You can do all of that in the same day. Tell me a bit about that, because honestly, I don't know a ton about Sweden's manufacturing culture. And I manage, uh, imagine a lot of our guests might be learning about that for the first time. So what are some of the big industries over there, just out of curiosity? So Sweden went through a big you know, phase of industrialization in the early 1900s. And there's a lot of brands that you probably have heard of, but you may not know actually come from Sweden. So like Husqvarna, Electrolux. Mm -hmm. Volvo and Saab, obviously, um, but there's a lot of great companies. Um, and then ABB was actually a merger between a Swedish company, ASEA, and, and Brown Bovary, a Swiss company. So we still claim them as Swedish, even though they might claim that they're Swiss. Um, mm. And the whole Swedish-Swiss confusion obviously only makes it worse. But I'd say the biggest industry for a long time has been paper and pulp. Um, you know, Sweden has a you know, a lot of trees, <laughs> a lot of forests. So you've got great paper and pulp companies like Holman, like SCA and Stora Enso as well. So it's a definitely an industrial nation. And what's really fascinating right now is that they're doing what's called a kind of new industrialization. There are more like new industrial facilities being built than ever before. And a lot of them with a very green spin on them because especially Northern Sweden has um, amazing access to green energy through hydro, hydroelectricity. So there's one company, H2 Green Steel, they're making the first carbon neutral steel. It's the first like steel mill that's being built in Europe in, in ages. It's gonna be completely carbon neutral. There's another one, Northvolt, which is you know building the largest battery factory for the auto industry. It's actually started by one of our investors and advisors who used to run supply chain and, and procurement at Tesla. So he moved back to Sweden to really build up a battery industry in Europe. So it's the Swedish industrial scene is, is on fire right now. It's really exciting. Well, if I'm hearing that right, between the history you have there, the green initiatives, this new industrial revolution, and actually, I think it's in, an industry that, from what I understand, is pretty close to you and your family, the, the pulp and paper industry as well. Yep. You've, you've had that background for a long time. I, uh, what, what, we're on the topic right now, so give me a bit of that background, right? You come from a manufacturing family, correct? Specifically yep. in the pulp and paper space? Yep. So... It's um, my family's been in the paper and pulp industry for um, a long, long time. And my dad worked a little bit more diversified in manufacturing, both kind of heavy equipment and, and other processes, but a lot in paper and pulp as well, because especially my grandfather, great grandfather and their parents were all in, in northern Sweden, in the paper and pulp industry. And we used to joke that my 
great-grandfather and grandfather both lost fingers on the factory floor. So my dad actually ended the tradition of, you know, the men in our family not having all their fingers. Um, you know, this was a different time, you know, OSHA sure. and, and health and safety was different in the early 1900s. Well, it's certainly a tradition that you are lucky to have uh, to have yeah. your, uh, your father having broken before you were around. Yeah. So that way you've still got all your fingers intact for anyone watching the right. video. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, the pressure would be on. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm glad your fingers are intact. I'm glad <laughs> safety standards continue to improve. Yeah. It's, a, it's a popular topic here on, on Manufacturing Happy Hour. But before we dive into machine learning, which is one of the first topics I want to cover with you, I do have another personal question. Just looking at your background, you know, you have the manufacturing background, but if I look at the things you've done, you've had some diversity in your experiences, right? You've been and if I saw correctly, personal financial management with a company that you had started, you've worked for Vodafone, you've been around, and then you've circled back to manufacturing with what you're doing with Odin. So tell me how that played out a little bit. It was actually, I guess the two kind of consistent themes is like entrepreneurship and technology. And then it all came back to kind of my deep rooted passion for just making things in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So originally, I, uh, I went to school in, for industrial engineering, specialized in production in Sweden and France. And it was actually there that um, I helped a professor with research on analytics and optimization uh, in manufacturing. So visited everything from you know big companies like Borg, Warner, SCA, some British aerospace engineering, down to small mom and pop job shops. And that's really where the genesis of, of Odin happened. Um, mm. I then wanted to, you know, work with something that would prepare me to start Odin. And I wanted to work with machine to machine communications. And so at the time, Vodafone were kind of the leaders in machine to machine communications. I ended up actually working in different departments in Vodafone and quitting before joining the machine to machine team. So I worked with, you know, NFC payments and, and just enterprise go to market in general. And then at the end of the day, we the kind of itch to get started with Odin was a lot larger than what I thought was the benefit of, of staying around there. Mm. It's also if you if you really if you've passed the point where you know you need to start something and it's just a question of when, it's a very different you know career experience to work in a very large organization. Yeah, um, because you know if you want to be an entrepreneur, you might want to move faster than a hundred thousand person organization will allow. That's really interesting because I'm not sure. And maybe tell me what you've seen from your experience. Do you think that's unique that you, let's say, had the discipline to say, hey, there's some things I need to learn before I start this company. I'm going to go somewhere where I can learn those skills, which will help me with the, the dream company I want to create. Do you think that's unique or common for entrepreneurs and founders? It's a good question. Um, I don't know. I still think that I still think that there's a lot more that I could have learned before starting Odin. But at the same time, there's nothing that would have given me the kind of the pace of learning that just doing it actually did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm almost fatalistic when you look back in hindsight and say that any other decisions would have ended up in a completely different outcome and it's hard to you know compare an unknown to a known but there's definitely been 
you know, you learn a lot by doing. And if I'm like, when I'm giving advice to other people who are interested in starting their own businesses, I, you know, usually try to recommend that they should go through a fast growth company themselves to really understand mm -hmm. what happens in an organization when you go through that. Because there's a lot of things that it's beneficial to know some of the pitfalls. But on the okay. other hand, you can get that same kind of advice through, you know, investors, advisors. And at the end of the day, it's just about being open. And sometimes the passion for the problem is the thing that really dictates it. I think when we started, you know, back in 2014, there were a lot of things that were very early in terms of Industry 4.0. And especially mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons we ended up in the U.S. instead of Europe, because we, we started in, in Europe. But mm. we saw that the perception of cloud, as an example, in manufacturing was totally different in Europe compared to the U.S. And also kind of, you know, there's there's differences in cultural, you know, buying behaviors and languages and, and everything else that just meant that the U.S. was a better place to start. But perception of cloud was definitely a big thing compared to, you know, U.S. versus Germany. Wow. A lot of information I'd love to dig in on there. I'm going to highlight a couple things there, and I've got one more question before we kind of get to the crux of the conversation. So I love that advice on, hey, if you if you, like advice to founders, if you want to work or create a high growth company, work for a high growth company. I think that's excellent advice, but you also provide other areas where you can get that experience as yeah. well. I love that you mentioned that aspect of looking for the right spot to start the company. You know, Europe mm -hmm. wasn't quite ready for you in 2014. Mm -hmm. So you looked at the geography, you looked where people were ready to accept cloud. Other great advice for the manufacturing leaders out there. The one thing I want to ask you that I didn't quite hear yet is you mentioned you never got into the machine to machine portion of Vodafone mm -hmm. while you were there. What is something from that experience that helped you when building Odin? It's a good question. I think um, I think I learned a lot about just you know working with customers and kind of B two B environments in general. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the past, you know, I didn't have that much exposure to that. And I think what I realized is that, <clears throat> especially when you look at kind of an industrial IoT business, the the reason why I wasn't that interested in pursuing machine to machine as a means to the end was because the network side of it was getting more and more commoditized by the day. And I saw that the real challenge was to really understand, you know, the user behavior, the manufacturer, the real problems that you're trying to solve for the manufacturers and working on the machine to machine angle wasn't really going to drive that because I think, you know, the passion for the problem when you're starting a business is, in my opinion, the most important thing, because that's the thing that gives you the energy to run through walls. And my passion was really on the manufacturing process itself, not necessarily, you know, are we going to use M2M or, or another communication protocol or, or, or networking architecture? So, you know, really doubling down on just the users I think was mm -hmm. the thing that I learned through not seeing it there, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I follow that. I, I love that you highlight just the B2B nature, the customer nature. I think seeing it from a fast moving company and then a large established company is important just because then, you know, 
I mean, what I guess what I've personally learned in my career, it's like you need to know how people are going to buy, right? And you need to understand these big companies um, and how their yeah. uh, purchasing cycles work, to to say the least. So, hey, I and appreciate it. Oh, especially there's one one thing there when you're when you're applying you know a new technology um because there's the really interesting dynamics in that and that you often have to be a translator mm-hmm. because the you know you've got the buying behavior of the executive who might be looking a little bit more into the future of saying i want to do this because five years from now you know this will be part of the building blocks that will really transform our business it's very different from the motivation of the users on the ground today. And mm-hmm. so you need to really understand both of those sides and create the link of like, all right, we're going to deliver this today, which is going to change or augment your current workflows like this, which makes your day mm-hmm. job better. Yep. And it ties into this future vision of where you as an organization will go, where the future of this role will go. Um, and really, you know, that translator between day-to-day pain points between the future is so critical in complex B2B. Oh yeah, it's it's balancing people that have short-term priorities and balancing people that have long-term priorities. And there's there's yeah. there's gotta be both when it comes to technology, right? So yeah. I, I love the overview here. A lot of good lessons from your background. Let's take us back to Sweden where we've uh, we've finished a day of snowboarding, of skiing, and we're <laughs> cracking that beer. I normally ask this towards the start, but we got on a roll here. But my first question is, you know, you mentioned you like to simplify complex topics when we were chatting mm-hmm. before the interview. So this is a perfect one because I'm going to ask you a really basic one. Describe machine learning as simply as possible in a way that makes the biggest impact. I believe that's the way you phrase things. Just explain it as if we've never heard of machine learning before. I think people often think of machine learning as, you know, either magic or bullshit. And I think it's really (laughs) important to, you know, signal that it's, it's neither of those things. Because also, you know, we're not talking about generalized artificial intelligence. We're really talking about narrow AI, which is good at finding or kind of uncovering patterns in the data when the rules aren't super simple or recognizing old patterns. And I think, you know, in manufacturing, we've been looking for patterns, you know, forever. And people have been building, you know, control plans, test plans, PID loops, everything. But when you have few people a lot of data and especially tons of different variables, it gets really difficult to actually know what is, you know, right behavior between these metrics. But machine learning can be really effective at actually, you know, understanding the true patterns there. And oftentimes you talk about kind of supervised machine learning or unsupervised machine learning. And I'm going to not use that jargon, but if you look at kind of unsupervised, if you will, really what that's supposed to help you with is to understand, you know, this group of data is different from that group of data. And that's really useful in helping people find, you know, commonalities or find breadcrumbs to really speed up their problem solving. Supervised machine learning is more of an example of, you know, I know what this thing looks like, and this thing might be a quality failure. 
I know what this thing looks like. Show me a couple of more examples of that, and then I'll be able to predict it in the future because I'll know what the patterns in the data looks like, and I can alert people you know, ahead of time. But at the end of the day, and this is what I think is so exciting about that kind of link between you know, what the executives might want you know, in terms of the future of AI for manufacturing, but what the users want today, it's really just about discovering problems faster and solving problems faster. And how you know, systems and machine learning models can speed up that user workflow. Like how can we discover the problems that we have in the manufacturing process faster than we are today? And how can we speed up their problem solving by giving them the right breadcrumbs? Eventually, you know, we can talk about the self-driving factory and you know, complete AI automated systems. But today, it's more just about how do we solve problems faster? We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Concept Systems, who you can find at conceptsystemsinc.com. Concept Systems is an independent systems integrator and your automation solution partner for anything from antiquated control system retrofits to greenfield controls coordination and project management. Whether it's process or discrete control, Concept Systems has been doing this for over 20 years. They've partnered with best-in-class companies like Rockwell Automation and Fnook to conceptualize, design, and build automation systems that include everything like robotics, vision systems, and manufacturing intelligence solutions. Personally, I've been familiar with Concept Systems for a couple years now, and I have to say I'm a huge fan of the amazing team they have over there. With national presence across the U.S., they have application experience in more than just a few industries, including food and beverage, aerospace, automotive, building products, and metals, just to name a few. If you have a project coming up requiring an automation solution partner or even a main automation contractor, head over to conceptsystemsinc.com and get in touch. They take an extremely methodical, risk-mitigating approach to project management that allows you to hit your project timelines and keep focusing on your core business. Oh, and if you want to hear a bit more about Concept Systems, make sure to check out Episode 7 of Manufacturing Happy Hour, which is our panel discussion on smart manufacturing, featuring Concept Systems' very own Director of Sales and Marketing, Ryan Wasmond. And now, back to today's episode. Well, let's, let, you know, I like that you brought it up at the start, right, where you said, is machine learning magic or is it bullshit? Because I believe after a day of snowboarding, that's how I actually would have asked the question. Yeah. Um, but I, I like how you went in on that. And the, the question I did want to ask next ties into this. So you talk about machine learning being good at recognizing patterns, finding old patterns, new patterns, whatever it may be. And it ultimately helps people discover and solve problems quicker as mm -hmm. a result of that. Can you paint a picture of what that looks like in manufacturing and maybe what that looks like in terms of what you do at Odin Technologies? Absolutely. And I often like the kind of the journey, um, kind of the user journey. If you think about, you know, I want to discover a problem faster. Now that I know that a problem has occurred or, or may occur again, how can I prevent that? And then, you know, how can I really optimize things? So I think 
we look at the, you know something we call guided analytics because we've discovered that you know even though we might have algorithms that can recommend you know optimal settings to a process engineer that can increase output that's you know theoretically very valuable but if you haven't built trust between the platform and the user or the trust in the data it's really difficult to make real changes and actually, the value only comes when you make a change. Otherwise, what are you doing? So step one in that journey is really just about building trust and making sure that the user feels like the system is a partner to them in how they're going about their day jobs. And so a typical example of, of guided analytics might be a you know type of scrap analysis where you look at, you know, for every time you have this scrap reason, here are the things that are different from non-scrap times to this scrap time. And just automatically giving them what I call the breadcrumbs on how they can start and speed up their problem solving. That's really valuable and it saves the engineers a tremendous amount of time. And especially now in this time when you've got, you know, everyone has few engineers and they'd like to hire more, but it's difficult. Mm -hmm. So it's imperative to make sure that those engineers are spending their time doing really valuable things. Now, let's just say for the sake of argument that, you know, it was a common scrap issue uh, or quality defect that we're working with. And so we were able to highlight, you know, the key contributors to those quality failures and speed up the problem solving for that user. So the next step is, okay, we know the rules that creates this problem. Let's make sure that we can prevent this. And for that, you know, it becomes a lot easier to actually create the right alerting framework once you know the rules. And I think here's another, you know, way where machine learning can really be valuable because alerting, if you know the rules, is very simple. But it's difficult to find the rules especially if you don't have, you know, kind of intelligent system that kind of speeds up that problem solving. Mm -hmm. But one thing that we found really valuable is what we call intelligent alerts, where we look at the history to just say, this line is not behaving like it has in the last three weeks. You know, mm -hmm. this metric isn't behaving like it has in the last couple of weeks. To really just, again, you know, if you have a person who's constantly monitoring that metric or that line, they might be able to catch that but it requires a tremendous amount of domain knowledge and a tremendous amount of attention, especially when you might have hundreds of lines with 200 metrics each, all feeding in a second by second data. Now you can have a system that easily monitors that in real time and just says, right here, look at this, because this might be important. You know, it's not opinionated yet, but we're still just at the start of the journey. Uh, once you've learned enough and you've actually built trust in the data, it then becomes a lot easier to kind of predict, you know, offline quality failures in real time. Or you want to prescribe, hey, we think we can increase the output of this product by changing your settings to X, Y, Z. You know, once you have the engineer's trust and they know how to validate that as well, um, you can start making real changes really quickly. And that's exciting. One question I have in all of this is who is who's right? for machine learning in this case? When do you know you're ready? Because when I hear you talk about breadcrumbs, guided analytics for like scrap analysis, for example, the example you were going off of, 
what one thought that I have in my mind is do a lot of people in manufacturing have the data they need for this already and they're just not using it? Or is it a matter of getting the data? I think a lot of people have the data, but it's very siloed. Um, mm -hmm. There's definitely still a lot of production lines and factories that are unconnected. So the data might be generated by the machine, but it's not collected mm -hmm. or stored. And we definitely see a correlation between, you know, the larger the company, the more likely it is that they have the data in a historian or at least in spread out between a couple of different databases between QA, ERP and SCADA. Um, so we find, you know, the unconnected environments are more common in, in smaller companies. Um, luckily, you know, the environment for or the market for, you know, data acquisition is getting better by the day. And so capturing data feels like it's a solved problem. And there's many amazing companies that do that, but it still requires time, money, labor to go get it done. Um, yeah. In terms of, you know, adoption, um, we've found that especially if you're a large organization and you're looking at your entire footprint, you should really look at, you know, obviously making sure that you're solving a real tangible problem. You want, you know, ROI, you want it to be scalable and, and all of those things. But really what we've found is kind of a good adoption framework is, you know, there should be enough of an infrastructure that you can de deploy rather quickly so that you can, you know, show ROI pretty quickly. You want, the skill and the will in the factory to be high. And that usually more goes into culture rather than hard skills. You want a culture where they really want to improve. You know, they, mm -hmm. they don't want to hide, they don't want to hide the data. They want to look for it. So it's more about culture and curiosity that are the biggest drivers. And then you often find, you know, process engineers that are already doing all of this, you know, they are, collecting the data manually, they're putting it into Excel, they're doing all this work, it just takes time. They're usually the ones that cling on the fastest and generate tremendous amounts of value. The trick though is how do you get every other person in the facility to be equally powerful as that you know, super user? Mm. Because if you only have a super user, it's, it's a lot, well, you're still going to get a lot of value, but you're not really going to get the transformational change that you as an organization might want. And that goes into both, you know, product design, how do you make it approachable, how to make it easy to use, um, but also how do you, you know, do the right training so that you don't start the non-advanced user with a prescriptive algorithm to recommend perfect set points. You start the you know, non-advanced user on just here's data transparency. Here's a way for you to solve your problems faster. Oh, and did you know that this is the reason this thing happens compared to that? Is it fair to say that when a company really gets involved in machine learning, it helps the culture evolve as well, right? Like based on what you were saying there, it sounds like there are different starting points depending on who the users. And I've got to think as they get more and more advanced, get more breadcrumbs, get more data, they're able to start doing more. And it almost seems like the culture becomes more empowered as well. Do you see that when you work with companies? Yeah, because I and I think that's where like the, the guiding light there is really kind of the speed of problem solving. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, you know, 
there are a lot of interesting challenges in manufacturing today. There's a lot of them that we didn't know about two years ago, which just, you know, by extrapolation, there's going to be a lot of interesting problems that we don't know about two years from now. Mm-hmm. But we know one thing, and that's if your teams are able to solve problems faster, then they will be more equipped come what may two years from now. Yeah. And especially if you continuously look at, you know, the link between an, a factory that doesn't have advanced systems where people are already, you know, solving problems today to the, you know, AI assisted automated factory, really the Delta is the time to action. Mm. And you're constantly chipping away at the time to action because you might start with, you know, people are just already doing this, you know, collecting data on their own, forming an hypothesis, going to make a change. But then you move into where a system might recommend, here's a problem, look at this, they still explore it. And then a system recommends, a, you know, finds a problem, recommends a piece of analysis, maybe prescribes an action, the people still make the change. And the final step, you know, maybe the user just validates the change, but it goes directly to the automation system. So you have a human mm-hmm. in the loop, AI assisted production line. And really all we've done is just shortening the time to action. And in a very lean principle way, thinking about how do we cut out non-value added time or non-value added tasks. So I think that journey of, you know, how do the jobs change? How does the interaction with the systems change? All of that is just about shortening time to action to make more with less. I love that. I think that helps us summarize the value of machine learning, right? Shortening the time to action, as you said, many times over. I'm going to expand this as well as as we get towards the end of our conversation, because one comment you made in a previous discussion was that the value of someone's business is the sum of all the problems that they solve, right? And we've been talking very specifically about machine learning today. We've gotten into talking about culture as well. But I know there are a lot of other issues that your company has been, I mean, solving ultimately or helping manufacturers solve in the work that you do. You recently did a webinar around how you're assisting, you know, talking about companies, how are they managing supply chain disruption? How are they making sure they have capacity when demand spikes or demand changes? What are they doing about workforce challenges? We've touched on that a little bit. And finally, a a fourth one in there is how are they adapting technologies based on COVID as well? I put I may have put some words in your mouth there a little bit, but I know these are some of the areas that that you've been touching on. So as we start to wrap things up, how is Odin helping solving all of these problems? What a setup. Yeah, we clearly don't solve all of them. <laughs> sure, but you can help. And, and yeah, right, exactly. If, if I painted the light that we solve all of it, I've, I've severely oversold our, our capabilities. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, the, the quote, you know, the, the value of a company is the sum of all the problems you solve. It's one that I love. And I think it's especially true for manufacturers. It's actually stolen by one of the co-founders of Spotify, but I... I I keep repeating it because I think it's so true. And it kind of goes into, again, if you can solve more problems, speed up your problem solving, you increase the value of business, especially if you solve problems than your competitors. That's a lasting strategy that will continue to give you a competitive advantage. But yeah, we did this state of manufacturing um, survey and, and report. So we surveyed over 800 different manufacturers across the U.S., 
And we also did some deep interviews with a couple of key executives to really understand, you know, what's going on. And it's, it's so interesting because it's almost like a perfect storm where you have, you know, supply chain disruptions, crazy changes in demand and, and buying behavior. Some of it may be because of the supply chain disruptions. You've mm -hmm. got the workforce challenges that are, you know, it feels like the skills gap in manufacturing we've talked about for years, but it's always been kind of the slow moving, you know, killer. It hasn't been like the, as dramatic as it is now. And then you've got technology, you know, as, you know, something that kind of messes and helps all of those things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially we've found that the biggest inhibitor to really scale up a lot of the solutions that can mitigate the, you know, the challenges with these things, the biggest constraint is labor itself. Because you've mm -hmm. got, you know, shortages of both low-skilled labor and high-skilled labor. Now, an interesting thing that we've found is that, you know, across these kind of four mega trends, there really isn't a silver bullet, but there's so much about this that just goes down to doubling down on fundamentals and the basics. And we go through this a lot in the report and in the webinar that's available on our website, um, that if people is the, the biggest challenge, you know, really doubling down on how do you create the right training programs? How do you create the right rewards and recognition programs and how do you get people really engaged these are you know business 101 and in normal times you can get away with not being excellent at it but in tough times you have to be really excellent at the basics and i think you know especially when i talk to you know customers and manufacturers the higher up in the organization you get the more the emphasis on is on people because mm -hmm. everyone knows that like people at the end of the day makes the world go around. And so figuring out how are we going to make more than we are today? How are we going to make better things than we are today with fewer people? So I think one of the things that we, that often gets unsaid is that we're not going to hire ourselves out of this workforce challenge. We have to accept that we won't have as many people in manufacturing. And technology and automation is going to actually help you attract people to manufacturing, but it's not going to close the mm -hmm. whole gap. It's going to make those jobs a lot more interesting and exciting, and especially just how to cut out non-value at a time. There's so much about this that you know sounds almost trivial because it's basics, but it's at the same time very true. Like people as employees, they want to be engaged. They want to solve big problems. They want to have an impact. And that's what we as employers want as well. We want our people to have a big impact. We want them to stay. We want them to be excited. And we just really need to double down on the tools that allows them to have clear impact, career opportunities, and everything else. Mm -hmm. Well, I know I set you up for, uh, uh, I, I introed that pretty big when I mentioned you help solve yeah. all those problems. But I mean, what you are doing, it goes back to you're shortening the amount of time it takes to solve a problem, right? You're empowering yeah. people and you're, you're ultimately helping those people do more, even if they're not as fully staffed as they used right. to be. So it, it all comes full circle there a little bit. And I mean, at the end of the day, we are judged by the value that we create for our customers. And the value is increase output 
or mm -hmm. increase margins, decrease graph, decrease waste. We are only as good as, you know, the value that we create for our customers. But the philosophical like underpinning of that is just how do we empower your teams? How do we get them to discover problems and solve problems faster? Because if we do that, we know that output will increase. Absolutely. Well, I, that's, I, I think that's a good bow to, to kind of tie a lot of our conversation together today. As we're wrapping up, is there anything you wish I would have asked you that we didn't touch on during this conversation? What beer would have what beer would we have been drinking? Maybe. Excellent question. <laughs> what beer what, what beer would we have been drinking in Sweden? Well, obviously we would have been drinking a, you know, a local local brewery from from Ora. But I think on the side of it, we would have also had a shot of Swedish aquavit. And mm. you know, they come in all different shapes, flavors and, and sizes. I probably would have made you try one of the really horrible ones just to see how you <laughs> react. Um, if you ever know like the Malort from Chicago. I was literally well, just thinking that. Is it better or worse than Malort? <laughs> well, Malort, the, I think his name is called Jepsen. It was actually from like a Swedish ancestry who oh, brought okay. this so, recipe over. It's so, like, that is it. <laughs> So, so Malort is your fault. Now I know who to blame for all of this. I had, exactly. I didn't realize it traced back to the Swedes. My goodness, that yeah. is. I think I've heard Malort described as it's like a schnapps, but instead of peppermint, it's flavored with screams of the damned. Is uh, how yes. I've heard it described. Oh my goodness. Well, since I have had, um, I hate to admit it, but plenty of shots of Malort in my life. I live in Milwaukee, so it makes its way up here as well from Chicago, but. Uh, Oh my goodness. Well, I think the beers sound great. The, yeah. the shot, eh, you know, we'll do it yeah. anyway for the, for the tradition, but no, yeah. I, uh, I, I've enjoyed having you on here. What's the best way to get connected with you and Odin technologies? So the best way of website, www.odin.io, you can find out a lot of more information there, but also you can just reach out to me directly, willem at odin.io. All right. I can't say that when I started this interview, I thought I'd be ending it with a conversation around Malort, but there's a first time for everything here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. A big thanks to Odin Technologies as well as Willem for jumping on today's show. I've been hearing about this company for a while, excited that they were our first group we could talk to about machine learning on this show. So great way to kick things off around that topic. If you want to learn more about Odin Technologies, head to odin.io or you can visit the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 67. There you can also learn more about Aura Sweden, the destination where we would, we would have theoretically been having this conversation today, as well as some of the actual liqueurs that Malort is based on. I am assuming, as Willem said, they are much better than Malort. So give those a look as well over at the show notes page. If you are interested in being a part of conversations like this, talking about machine learning, talking about other big issues that manufacturers face, well, make sure to join the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. That group lives over on LinkedIn. It's over 500 manufacturing leaders strong. And you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. Just make sure to connect with me and say, hey, Chris, want to join the community? And that way I can let you right into that group. Also, I want to thank our sponsor for today, Concept Systems. Concept Systems is one of the best systems integrators in North America. We featured them back in episode seven where we had Ryan Wasmond from their team as part of a 
digital transformation panel. They do all sorts of applications. Make sure to check them out. You can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash concept systems to learn more. And with that, that's it for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you back here next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.